Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine. And we are two Onk Docs. Today's episode is going to be focusing on what you need to know regarding acute promyelocytic leukemia, also known as APL. This will include the need-to-know chromosomal translocations, the presentation, the diagnostic workup, how to risk stratify APL, the treatment of APL, and also differentiation syndrome. Great. So, yeah, this is a very high-yield topic, both practically and on boards. So to start things off, what is APL? Yeah. APL is a unique subtype of acute myeloid leukemia. It encompasses about 10 to 15% of all AML cases, and it generally occurs in a younger population as opposed to the rest of the subtypes of AML. Okay, great. And so what is the pathology of APL? Yeah. So the pathology of APL is most readily um, noted by the translocation in M3, which is translocation 1517, and that is the PML rare effusion. And rarely, this can also be translocation 1117. Um, so you need definitely need to be able to recognize that APL is translocation 1517, and if they're being mean to you on the boards, they may give you translocation 1117. And the PML rare effusion, it suppresses the rara target genes, leading to blocks in cell differentiation, thus halting the cells in the promyelocyte stage. And promyelocytes themselves are strongly positive for MPO and CD33 and negative for CD34 and HLA-DR. One other thing that you need to know about APL for the boards and also in real life when you're going in at midnight to look at some blood smears is that APL has hour rods. Um, so the boards will either show you a picture of a blast with hour rods in it or it will describe them in text as pink red stained needle shaped structures seen in the cytoplasm of the myeloid blast. Yeah, I, like you said, this is very high yield and also practically something that you definitely need to look at on the smear for any suspected case of APL. Um, so now that we know the pathology of APL, how do these patients present and how do we diagnose them? Yeah. So these patients will present generally in the younger population, um, and they also will present you most likely, especially on your boards, in DIC or have intracranial hemorrhage during their presentation. This, in my mind, is that classic boards vignette of a young patient coming in with either a DIC lab panel or they'll have intracranial hemorrhage, and it will give you some hints of your thinking a myeloid neoplasm, and this is going to be APL. We have to treat the DIC aggressively with supportive measures. The platelet cutoff to transfuse platelets is 50,000 in these cases because they're at such high risk for CNS hemorrhage. And you also treat them with cryoprecipitate or FFP to keep the fibrinogen greater than 150 and the PT, PTT normal. Yeah, that's extremely important. Um, and, you know, you might have patients, if they really present in DIC in the ICU, and make sure that you tell the ICU team to keep these parameters um, so when we diagnose APL, how do we treat it? Great question. So unlike other subtypes of AML, APL has a very high cure rate. That's why it's so important to identify and treat these patients as quick as possible. They have a 95% cure rate with all transretinoic acid, I'll call it ATRA from now on, and arsenic trioxide, also known as ATO, which is what I'll reference it later in this, um, this little podcast. So in the real world, if you think that a patient could have APL, you need to start ATRA immediately. It has been proven that overall survival is the best with immediate initial of ATRA. 
Yeah, that's extremely important. Um, and so then how do we restratify APL? Yeah. So there is an article from JCO. It's a paper done by Dr. D'Angelo, and it breaks APL into three risk categories. I think the most important are low and high risk, and low risk is when the white count is less than 10,000 and the platelets are greater than 40,000. Intermediate risk is when the white blood cell count is less than 10,000 and platelets are less than 40,000, so a little bit lower platelet in that category. And high risk is when the white blood cells are greater than 10,000. Great. And so how do we treat APL? Yeah. So there is a landmark New England Journal of Medicine paper that compared ATRA plus ATO versus ATRA plus chemotherapy in APL patients. And the ATRA plus ATO had improved two-year overall survival and also improved two-year disease-free survival um, compared to ATRA plus chemotherapy. So ATRA plus ATO is really the cornerstone treatment for patients with APL. There was another patient or another paper done by Dr. D'Angelo in the JCO that said, there's a little algorithm that walks through it, but if there is suspected APL based on DIC at presentation, atypical promyelocytes, or negative HLA-DRN flow, you should begin ATRA while waiting for cytogenetics. If the translocation 1517 is negative, thus ruling out APL, you just stop the ATRA and you treat it like any other subtype of AML. If the translocation of 1517 is confirmed, you then move on to risk stratify. In low or intermediate risks without QTC prolongation, which we'll talk about later, you start them on ATRA plus ATO and hydria if they have a high enough white count. If someone presents with high risk, you get them started on ATRA plus ATO, and you can add in gemtuzumab ozogamycin, which is a monoclonal antibody drug conjugate that targets CD33 and has attached to it a cytotoxic agent, so it delivers the cytotoxic agent directly to these cells. Or you can start them on ATRA plus ATO plus idorubicin, which is an anthracycline that leads to DNA breaks. So the big picture is if someone is low risk, all they need is ATRA plus ATO. If someone is high risk, they need ATRA plus ATO, and you can consider adding in another cytotoxic agent. Right. Yeah, those are great points. And what about dosing of ATRA and ATO? So... I hope that the boards do not ask you dosing questions because I think it is cruel and unusual punishment for all fellows trying to board certify or recertify. Um, so the dosing of ATR and ATO, there is many dosing regimens listed on the NCCN guidelines, and they break it down based on low risk or high risk, and also there's special clinical indications that can push you in one direction for another. Um, there's also different dosing and different dosing schedules based on induction period of APL and consolidation period of APL. So I, I hope they don't ask you details, but I think in general, the one that you should know is starting dose for ATRA in any scenario is 45 milligrams per metered square per day, and that's divided into two doses. And uh, what kind of things do we have to monitor while on ATRA and ATO? Yeah. So while patients on ATO, you need to monitor their QTC um, because it is a QTC prolonging drug. And you also need to take into consideration, are they on antiemetics that are also prolonging the QTC? You need to be aggressive about repleting the potassium and magnesium. 
And I think the general guidelines for that are you want the QTC to be under 500, you want the potassium to be over 4, and the mag over 1.8. Yeah. And so outside of monitoring for drug toxicity, what else should you be aware of during the treatment course? Yeah. So APL also, in addition to presenting with DIC and also intracranial hemorrhage risk, it can have what's called differentiation syndrome, which is important to know because it's potentially fatal and it can occur in 25% of patients who are being treated with ATRA and or ATO. And you need to anticipate this syndrome to happen. This is something that if you miss it, it can be detrimental to your patient in an otherwise highly curable disease. And so the median time to symptom onset of differentiation syndrome is 7 to 12 days after starting therapy. The pathogenesis of differentiation syndrome is not completely understood, but it's believed to be from excessive inflammatory response, leading to increased chemokines and maybe some adhesion molecules on the APL cells themselves. So there's nonspecific symptoms. So again, you need to have high alert to look out for differentiation syndrome. And things to be on a lookout for is fever, weight gain, shortness of breath, pleural effusions, hypotension, renal failure, swelling anywhere, and then also pulmonary infiltrates. And the way that we treat this is by calming down that inflammatory process with dexamethasone 10 milligrams twice a day. This can be given IV or orally until resolution of all of the symptoms um, that, that popped up. If a patient is hemodynamically unstable during differentiation syndrome, you can hold the ATRA until that's improved. And this is extremely important. I remember on my bone marrow transplant rotations, you know, we really have to pay attention to this for all of our patients on ATRA and ATO and make sure you are reporting daily weights and asking for all of these symptoms of fluid overload. Um, so great summary. And what do you think some take-home points should be for our listeners? Yeah. So when you're walking into the boards and you think you're going to have an APL question on there, the big thing that you need to think about is that these are younger patients. They are presenting it. Their labs could look like AML, but they also have that component of DIC or intracranial hemorrhage. The biggest thing you need to think of is that knee jerk. You need to start ATRA immediately if APL is suspected. You need to be aggressive about supporting these patients through the DIC with platelets, cryoprecipitate, and FFP. You need to monitor their QTC, replete their potassium, replete their magnesium while they're on ATO. And you also need to anticipate differentiation syndrome and treat with dexamethasone 10 milligrams twice a day until resolution. Thank you guys for listening and good luck with boards. And please feel free to reach out to us with any corrections or comments on our Instagram, 2OncDocs. See you next week. Bye.